Uh, our main habit here at uh, Christchurch Central is to try and preach through books of the Bible. That tends to set the pattern of our, our sermon series. Uh, and uh, we're going back to Matthew's Gospel for the next three weeks uh, before changing tack. We've been in Matthew on and off for a good while now. Uh, this morning I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 22 and verses 23 to 33. Zach, can you give me a glass of water? Is that right? Crooky <laughs> thanks. So Matthew 23, sorry, Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33. It's a while since we've looked at Matthew's gospel. We had a bit of a change of tack over Christmas. Um, so let me just remind you of this, uh, this situation. We're in the last week um, of Jesus' life. Uh, and he's in Jerusalem debating, thanks so much, um, debating or rather being attacked by various different church leadership groups, significant factions in Jewish society. The Pharisees um, had a go in the passage we did just before Christmas, uh, all about the question of paying taxes to Caesar. Should we collaborate with the government that's conquered us or should we rebel, trying to trap Jesus one way or another? And now a second group, the, the Sadducees, are going to come and try uh, and embarrass Jesus. Uh, so, verse 23. Uh, let's hear the word of the Lord God. Uh, the same day, Sadducees came to Jesus, uh, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, uh, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let me pray for us uh, once more. Uh, Lord Jesus, we want to be uh, those who hear uh, what the Lord God is saying to us this morning, not deaf like the, uh, the Sadducees, uh, not denying your power, uh, not denying uh, the truthfulness of your word. So pour your spirit upon us and strengthen our hope in you, uh, we pray. We ask in your own name. Amen. Uh, let me ask you, how believable, how credible do you find the idea that you are going to live forever? How credible do you find the idea of resurrection, in other words? Now, I'm not talking there about the idea that your soul goes to heaven when you die, uh, as your body is buried in the grave. But the idea that one day, 
the trumpets will sound, that the sky will be torn, Jesus will return from heaven, and that every single human being will be raised to life again in a physical body, some to glory and some to destruction, eternal destruction. Uh, that is the Bible's great promise. Uh, it's not so much a promise of going to heaven when I die, although that is true for all those who've trusted Jesus at the moment. If you die and have trusted him, well, your body will go in the ground and your soul will go to be with Jesus in paradise. Children, remember the thief on the cross. And remember what Jesus said to him as he turned and put his trust in Jesus. Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So it's not this idea that when you die, you just sort of, Uh, become unconscious for a very long time and then when Jesus returns you wake up again Uh, there's no weight in that sense straight away your soul goes to paradise to heaven but that is not the, the, the biblical hope even heaven is waiting for something like we on earth are waiting for the day when Jesus returns even those in heaven are waiting for the resurrection of the body I was given a book for Christmas about, about Anglo-Saxons, um, which I'd asked for. And early on, it speaks about some of the amazing, I don't know if you've ever seen these kind of amazing tombs, some of the early kind of early English kings built, these great burial mounds where they buried whole ships full of goods. You get the same in the pyramids, don't you? Uh, where, where bodies are embalmed, the pharaohs are embalmed, and they were buried with great wealth and riches. Humanity has always had this desire for eternal life, is known and sensed, that there is life beyond the grave. I suspect it's true in many cultures. And again, not just a spiritual kind of living on as some great sort of spirit in the sky, some sort of Lion King dream, but actually a physical existence. These great kings from up north in, in, in Great Britain down to the pharaohs in North Africa and no doubt elsewhere as well were buried with goods. I'm pretty confident none of them were looking to the resurrection of the body in the way that Jesus uh, teaches. But that desire is there, and yet it can sound just pretty incredible, can't it? That's certainly what the Sadducees thought. Uh, if you're all here this morning and you're, you're new to Christian things, you're a bit sceptical, you're, you're not alone. If you doubt the idea that we could one day rise again, those doubts are not new. Uh, the Sadducees were told uh, in verse 23 say there is no resurrection. They were a particular group. They were the kind of, tend to be the wealthier upper class group in Judaism. And they didn't believe in, well, any kind of life after death, frankly, let alone the idea of resurrection. They also only held that the first five books of the Old Testament were God's word. The Torah, as it's often known, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's God's word, they thought. And all the other stuff was... Well, helpful maybe, but not the same as the Torah. And so they think they're going to humiliate Jesus. I tried to get this across as I read. Um, I think you're meant to hear them. We're meant to hear them kind of sniggering. Perhaps one of them takes the lead as as he actually asks the question. But but they're trying to paint a ridiculous scenario. They they start with with a uh, a truth from the Old Testament. It is true that in the book of Deuteronomy, verse 24, Moses, and ultimately God himself, set up this system uh, whereby if you died, you got married, you died before you'd had uh, any children, and therefore there was no one to leave your, you know, your farm to, uh, well then, um, your brother was meant to marry your widow, 
and their first child would count as your heir, and their second child would count as their own heir. Now, I know that sounds very strange to us. Um, let me just say briefly, that's not a rule that continues to today. Uh, it was very much set up um, for the kind of land system they were in. We haven't got time to, to answer that question this morning about how and why certain laws continue and certain don't. But it's, it's this, it's called leverite marriage. You might have heard of it. Leverite marriage. Lever is just a, a Latin word for a brother-in-law. And, and the Sadducees are right about that. It's in one of the books they like. After all, it's in Deuteronomy. But the Sadducees know that sort of Orthodox Judaism, if you like, that the true faith of the Old Testament taught uh, that there would be a resurrection of the dead. It's very clearly in Isaiah and Daniel, sort of books that they didn't quite hold in as much uh, esteem. And, and so they set this trap for Jesus. Uh, do, do you get how it works? Uh, seven brothers. Yeah, the first one marries a woman. But he dies before they can have kids. So his brother rightly marries, but then he dies before they have kids and on and on they go. Now, the question would work to Jesus if you just had two brothers, wouldn't it? So why seven? I suspect it's because they're just taking the mickey. You can hear them sort of sniggering and snickering in the background as perhaps their leader asks the questions, looking all sincere, but just mocking Jesus. And although we don't have the exact same pressing concern because we don't have the practice of lever at marriage, there are perhaps times when either doubts creep into our own minds about the resurrection or we, we hear the mockery of the world. Uh, so you, you say that the whole world will be renewed. Revelation 21 says it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, is it going to be Electricity. Uh, will Elijah need to learn how to, to use a, a microwave? What kind of new world is it going to be? A kind of 2000 BC new world or a, a modern new world? Uh, will Alfred the Great live in a kind of Anglo-Saxon mead hall uh, or in a, a nice smart modern flat? Uh, will Martin Luther need to learn how to drive? Are there going to be motorways? Will St Paul have an email address? Uh, it, what is it going to be like? It's pretty easy to ridicule, or it could be. Interestingly, the Sadducees, as I mentioned, were, were from like a wealthy end of society. Uh, one preacher said about them that it's often those most comfortable in this world who have greatest difficulty believing in the next. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? Uh, realistically, most of us here, I don't know what of you by any means, but most of us here are fabulously wealthy compared to most of the world throughout most of history. You might not be the wealthiest on your street or in your office or in the room, but compared to most of world history, very few of us worry whether we're going to eat tonight, where we're going to sleep. Those most comfortable in this world have the greatest difficulty believing in the next. It's so easy to become earthbound, isn't it? Live for the here and the now. And so it's not just sceptics who struggle. Maybe you are a sceptic and again, you're very welcome. We're glad you're here with us. But believers struggle with this. It seems so unreal, and yet we're meant to stake everything on it, aren't we? We know we're meant to live for the future, for this great day of resurrection, to suffer loss now for the sake of the future. So how can you be sure? What guarantees the resurrection? That one day you, okay, these fingers you can see in front of you, will be alive again. Two things, says Jesus. Two mistakes the Sadducees make, and therefore two promises that Jesus makes in return. 
Uh, the two things that guarantee your resurrection are the scriptures and the power of God. Do you see uh, Jesus answering in verse 29? You are wrong, Sadducees, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Two mistakes. So this morning, what is Jesus promising you? He's promising you a resurrection body. If you're one of his people, he is promising you a resurrection body. On what grounds? Well, this is what he says to you this morning. First of all, he says, you will rise because God is powerful. You will rise because God is powerful. Uh, verse 30 uh, deals with the, the area of the, the power of God. Although Jesus says neither the scriptures nor the power of God, he then deals with the power of God first. And it's strange, isn't it? In the resurrection, we read, they, just human beings, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. You're going to be like angels, said Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be transformed and not be human anymore. Angels are, are a different race, a different species. They don't know what the right word is. They're just different beings. You're not going to get transformed into an angel. But in some ways, we will be like angels, specifically here in the idea that we won't either get married or be given in marriage. Those two words are, the, if you like, the, the male and the female words. Um, if you're the man, you marry. If you're the woman, you're given in marriage. It's basically saying there's no marriages in heaven. Uh, note as a slight um, sidebar, if you like, that, that, that the understanding is that daughters are given by their fathers in marriage. Now, I know societies go wrong and we live in a different world and all the rest of it. But the idea is that, 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 that all women ought to be protected somehow by some man, whether the father or the husband. That is behind the logic of what Jesus is saying and why he uses those two words. We are not just totally interchangeable sexes. Now, now Jesus, I don't think, can be just saying there are no new marriages in heaven, because that wouldn't answer the question, would it? Sometimes people have said, well, there's no new marriages in heaven, but the old ones will continue. But that wouldn't deal with the question of this woman who's been married to several men before. And again, before we dismiss the Sadducees too quickly, that, that is a pastoral concern for some. There are people who, for perfectly good reasons, have ended up married to more than one person in their life. Perhaps they've been widowed and remarried. Perhaps their husbands have run off. Uh, they've been granted a, a legitimate divorce and they've remarried. Perhaps, frankly, they've just come to faith later in life and been through two or three marriages. Who knows? There are all sorts of reasons. Whose husband, whose wife will they be? It, it, that's the thrust of the Sadducees' question. And so Jesus' answer must be answering that. He cannot, therefore, just be saying there are no new marriages. But rather, I think he's saying there are no more marriage. You are no longer Mr. and Mrs. Uh, what is the problem that the Sadducees have made? What sort of the mistake the Sadducees have made? They've underestimated the power of God. The Sadducees have thought that, that the resurrection is just basically exactly the same as this world, but longer. Perhaps a bit, no more sin, maybe no more pain. But other than that, get rid of sin and suffering. It's exactly the same, think the Sadducees. Or at least that's what the Sadducees think the Bible teaches. And Jesus says, no, you're, you're mistaken. You've underestimated the power of God, that his power is going to effect such a change that, that actually the, the new world, although it will be physical still, you're still a human being, it's going to be a real world, you can touch and prod and all the rest of it, 
it is also going to be different. It's hard to know, therefore, exactly what the resurrected world will be like. The only clues we get are the resurrected body of Jesus. We know that when Jesus came back from the grave, he came back not as a ghost or a a soul or something or a spirit, but as a real person who could eat. Remember, Thomas' children touches Jesus' side. And yet there is something different about him. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul says it's a bit like a, a seed and a tree. Oh, I forgot, I realised in the song before and I totally forgot, but I meant to bring a seed this morning. Imagine a conquer. Imagine I was holding a conquer children. Now, conquers, what do they grow into? Well, they grow into great horse, his horse, chestnut, yeah, horse chestnut trees. Okay, great big trees. So imagine you looked at a conquer and then you buried it and you were able to hang around hundreds of years and watch it grow. Is the conquer the same as the tree? Well, sort of yes and sort of no. Uh, the tree has grown from that conquer. It's not a totally different plant. But in another sense, it looks incredibly different. There is continuity and there's huge difference. The Sadducees have overplayed the continuity. The world is going to be sown. Our bodies are going to be sown. And what exactly it will look like when it's raised, who knows? Yes, physical. But it's hard to put too much more flesh on the bones. Imagine you could talk to a baby in the womb. And... And they would say to you, well, what's it like? And said, How do I explain? How do I explain? And the baby would say, was well, it going to be totally different? You know, I can see I've got some little fingers and I've got to hear my little heartbeat. I'm like, yeah, those will, those will all be there when you get out. But it, it's just impossible. I can't explain to you. You've got no experience. Well, so too, the power of God will transform things. We will not be the same and the world will not be exactly the same. And marriage, well, it seems marriage will have passed away. I want to speak about marriage for, for, for a moment, but just before I do so, I do wonder actually if in uh, just in our world at the moment, um, the church world, and perhaps particularly in student circles, but I may be unfair, I don't mean in Leeds in particular, but just in general, that we, we, we tend towards overplaying the kind of continuity thing. I think this is something I've been guilty of. We're so keen to sort of puncture the idea that in heaven you're just sitting on clouds playing harps, okay, which is untrue, it's nonsense. Okay? You're not going to grow wings and... We're so keen to puncture that bubble that, that I, I wonder at times we sort of overplay our hand in explaining what it's going to be like. Yeah, I'm sure I've given talks at youth groups and, and possibly Christian unions, I don't know, um, maybe even sermons where I've talked about the fact that we'll definitely be painting and making boats and sailing and playing football. And I just don't know, actually. It's not impossible, but I can't be certain. I'm not sure we can be utterly certain. Because there is going to be this huge transformation, like a rebirth. And marriage, something totally central to this creation, to this age, it seems is no longer going to be there. So if marriage isn't going to be there, I think it's pretty punchy saying that we're sure that, I don't know, artistic endeavour or whatever else it might be, will be there. Now, if you're married, this can be unsettling. I find this, this passage unsettling. And in one sense, if you're married and you find this passage unsettling, I'm pleased. Because okay, it probably means you've got, you've got a healthy marriage. There is no, God has given me no greater gift on earth uh, than, than my wife. I'm not going to embarrass her by talking about her too much now. But if you, if, you, if you are married and you know the blessings of marriage, 
Okay, the, the love you feel for the other person, or the love you receive, the comfort, the security, the, the openness, the safety, the happiness. The, the idea that that is going to be taken from you at death can, can be well, quite chilling. I remember a friend at, at, at university um, who, uh, when, as we were heading into the, uh, the third year, uh, got engaged. There's usually a kind of student, you know, for those of you students, there's usually a kind of third year rush Okay, sort of panic. Oh no, we need to get married. We're never, if I don't get married now, I'll never get married again. Quick, 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 go, go, go. It's not true. Don't panic. Um, but anyway, there's always a bit of that. Um, and um, I remember saying in our little small group, um, wedding was coming up in, in, I don't know, in the summer, June, July, and it was kind of March time. And we were doing a passage and it was talked about Jesus' second coming. And she said, I hope Jesus doesn't come back till after I get married. <laughs> and I, 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 I think she was semi-serious. I want to I experience marriage. I want to know what it's like. I want... If this passage is unsettling to you as a married person, then you need to trust the power of God. He is able to make the new world infinitely better than, than all that you've got in this world. It is great that you have a loving husband or, or wife. It is great the comfort and joy you find with them. But, but the power of God is not going to be stumped uh, when it comes to the new world. There's an American minister who was technically, technically British because America hadn't broken away by then, but um, called Jonathan Edwards, out of what we now call America. And he said this, when a saint dies, or when a Christian dies, he has no cause at all to grieve because he's leaving his friends and relations whom he dearly loves. For he doesn't really leave them. He enjoys them still in Christ. Because, here's the, the key bit, I'll try and update the language a bit. Because everything that they love in them and love them for is in Christ in an infinite degree. Do you get that? I think that's, that's so, I find this so helpful. Everything you love about your wife or your husband or your mum or your dad or your children or your friends, it's not just about marriage. Everything you love about them is just a small reflection of something that is there to an infinitely greater degree in Jesus. It's really tempting, isn't it, to believe that, that actually it's my wife or, or my husband is, is, is more gentle than Jesus, is kinder than Jesus, is I'm safer with them than with Jesus. I can be more myself with them than with the Lord God. But it's not true. It's just not true. It's an understandable belief because we can see uh, and, and there's some directness we see face to face whereas it's a mirror darkly to use Paul's language when it comes to our relationship with God it can feel distant but it's not true and therefore you won't lose anything you would imagine that uh, when you turn 10 okay, your dad gave you a little toy car okay, a little toy which we make it a uh, Ferrari that's okay, a really cool car and said, so this is a little picture of what I'm going to give you when you turn 18. Yeah, and you enjoy playing with a little toy car, race it across the floor. You turn 18 and you go down to breakfast and dad's there with the keys to the real car outside. Well, how mad would you be to say, no, no, I don't want that. I want to stay with the toy. If your dad said, well, hand over the toy. You can no longer have the little toy anymore. You're getting the, you're getting the real thing. You wouldn't say, would you know? I want to hold on to the toy. You'd realise the toy had always just been a little picture of something far greater. It's similar, reflects it in some ways. Maybe it's the same colour, it's got wheels and all the rest of it, but it's nowhere near as good. 
Well, that is the promise, I think, that Edwards is getting at here, of course, because all, everything, you know, all human beings are made in the image of God. But we can never reflect how great he really is. So when we get the reality, then there'll be no loss in heaven, even though we're not technically Mr. and Mrs. Smith anymore. So the power of God is able to transform heaven to be this utterly blissful experience. That also means, of course, that if you're single and desperately would like to get married, that although there is maybe pain in the short term, and let's be honest, it can be difficult. I think sometimes we're too quick to say, well, it doesn't matter being single because you've got Jesus. And it can be painful being single. Not for everybody. Some people are very happy single. Sometimes you meet people and they don't really mind if they get married or not. That's fine. Marriage is certainly not the better state to be in. Singleness is, is, is highly honoured in the Bible. Jesus, of course, was single. But for many people, they would like to get married. It just, for whatever reason, hasn't happened. And there is a pain there. But ultimately, what you've lost, of course, is the toy car, not the reality. And it may be your path home mean you're going to have to do it without, without the toy car, without the image. But that doesn't mean that you lack anything, ultimately, because it is all there in Christ. I hope that doesn't feel in, in, sort of insensitive, uh, uh, downplaying the, the, the very real battles at times. But we do need to cling on to the fact that it is just an image. And ultimately, without nothing, he is there for us in every way that a spouse would be. The power of God guarantees that his people will rise again. How do we fan into flame that faith? Well, secondly, finally, more briefly, the promise of God also guarantees you'll rise. The promise of God to you this morning guarantees you will rise again. This is the second half of Jesus' argument in verses 31 to 33. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am, and here Jesus is quoting from Exodus 3, the incident with the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus is being clever here. He goes to one of the books that the Sadducees accept, Exodus. Remember, they only accept those first five books. And he makes an argument from the burning bush. Now, it's an argument that I am absolutely sure I've preached wrong in the past. Not badly wrong. For those of you who were in Derby, I think I might preach a similar passage. Um, uh, But I have got it wrong. And I just realised. Jesus is not making an argument about the tent. I can see the Derby people looking more carefully at me now. (laughs) Uh, It's it's not about the tense of the verb. That's what I always thought. I am the God. Not I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. That's what I've said in the past. Jesus doesn't say I was the God of Abraham, you know, I was his God back in the day, but I am. But, but it's, that's not quite right. It's not badly wrong, but it's not quite right. Because actually, we won't turn to it now, but if you turn to the passage in the burning bush, that God does not say I am, in the kind of a present tense verb, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and um, Jacob. Uh, rather, Moses says to God, well, you know, what shall I tell everyone your, your name is? You know, Moses has been, you remember, has been, called by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and he meets God in the burning bush and they say well and he says to to, to God what should I say and next is three God says this the Lord the God of your fathers the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you this is my name forever and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations there is no in that bit there is no I am the God of 
And actually, the, the argument, I think, is even more encouraging. The argument that Jesus is making, and this is why they're astonished by it, I think, it's even more encouraging. Hear what God said. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. What is my, You want to know my name? The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is my name. It's not about a verb tense. God is saying, I can't not use the word I am because I'm speaking English, but, but I am Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's God. You want to know what I'm like? I'm the God who's bound myself to them. And so Moses thinks, well, how did God bind himself to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? And Moses presumably knew the book of Genesis, knew the stories. We can read them. God bound himself to those people, to that family, that tribe, that nation as they became, through this covenant promise. This promise that he'd make them as great as the stars of the sky and, and grains of sand on the beach. That he would be with them, he'd be their God. And they had this great land, that they'd live in this wonderful world, this physical land. But, but Abraham died outside the promised land, never got there. Isaac died outside the promised land, never got there. Jacob died outside the promised land, never got there. God's saying to Moses, who was about to lead the troops, sorry, lead the troops, lead the, the people of Israel back to the promised land, God is saying to Moses, remember, I've made those promises, I've bound myself to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in that way. And the only way that can happen, the only way Abraham, Isaac and Jacob can ever inherit the land is if they rise again from the dead. Remember, this isn't an argument about whether the soul lives on, but whether the body will be resurrected. So I don't even quite think Jesus is just saying um, Abraham is in heaven now. That is true. But I don't think quite is the, the punch of it here, because it's an argument about resurrection future resurrection, not does the soul exist, continue to exist. And so I think what Jesus is saying is that these, because I've bound myself to these men, and of course all who follow in their footsteps, all who trust in me, and because my promise to them was a real world, then of course there's a resurrection of the dead. I will not break my name, I will not break my promise. I promised to save and bless them. That promise included a land. They died without a land. So clearly there must be a resurrection still to come. And and how am I going to be known throughout history? Well, not just as the God of a bunch of dead people who I never quite delivered for. No, as the God of a living people who I've redeemed. In other words, God has staked his reputation on raising his people from the dead. I think that's the point. God has staked his name on it, his reputation on it. So the kind of tense of the verb argument gets to the right, the right ending. But there's more power, I think, I think in, in this understanding. God has staked his name, his reputation on raising you from the dead. And therefore, it is the promise of God that can sustain your faith when it seems so unlikely. When you have all these questions buzzing into your head, or perhaps when people who don't believe are sort of mocking your faith. You're watching Ricky Gervais take the mickey out of Christians yet again, or whatever it may be. See what Jesus says to the Sadducees. Verse 31. Have you not read what was said to you by God? Notice they said, Moses said... And he says, well, what about you? But God says, 
Now, it's true that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, most likely, but ultimately they're written by God. And what, who was God speaking to when he wrote Deuteronomy or Exodus? Verse 31 again. Have you not read what was said to, not to Moses, not to them back then, but to you? Scripture is a living word. It is a present word. The Bible is not just a book that God wrote to people back then. The letter of Romans is not just written to the Romans, but to you, Jesus is saying. Exodus and the words that God spoke from the burning bush were not just spoken to Moses, but are spoken to you. In fact, there's even an untranslated word there. Um, Don't know why. But um, have you not read what was said to you by God saying, and then it's a sort of present tense word again, saying, I am the Lord. Scripture, the Bible, is a living, active word. It is God speaking to you this morning. That's why it's the centre of everything we do. People claim to say all sorts of different ways of God speaking, and without getting into that too much, the Bible is the way that God has promised, not just that he has spoken, but that he is speaking. It's, it's, it's why we spend so long preaching it on a Sunday. It's why we try and sing it in the Psalms. It's why we often use our prayers of confession from, from the Bible. It's why we use the comfort of the gospel from the Bible. We try and fill the service with the gospel for that reason. So with God's word. Because it's not me speaking to you, but God speaking to you. And therefore, it's to the Bible you must go to God's promise if you want confidence, certainty that you'll rise again. He is powerful. And he has promised, and it's scripture that will fuel your faith in that promise. He has bound his name to it. And that, as we close, is what God is like. That is incredible, isn't it? That the God is so full of love for his people, so he wants to bless his people, that he has staked his name on it. That is how much he wants to raise you from the dead. And in fact, that is exactly what he did. He put his name to it. He came to earth as a man, Jesus Christ. Jesus means he saves. He will save his people. God has made his very name, as he's revealed it to us, that of a saviour. And he himself has gone down to death, Jesus. He really died as a man. Yes, as God, he never dies. But as a man, he dies. He really dies. He goes down to the dead and he rises again. And therefore, we have even more confidence than the Pharisees or Sadducees could ever have had that we will rise again because Jesus has risen again. And to finish where we, where we began, all along, marriage was just a picture of his relationship with his people. That ultimately, I think, is why there's no marriage in heaven because it was just a shadow, back to the Ferrari and the, the Tonka toy thing, it was just a shadow of something much greater. Jesus is not going to remain unmarried, he's not going to be left at the altar. He's not going to be weeping alone in heaven because his bride has failed to turn up. The guarantee of your resurrection, therefore, is not found in you, in your goodness, your godliness, your holiness. But it's found in Jesus and his promise and his father's promise to him that he will not be left alone. So however dark it gets, and of course it can get very dark, you will rise because the promise and the power of God guarantee it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you call us to believe things that we cannot see. You call us to trust promises by faith. And there is nowhere we can go but to your word. 
And so we pray for the gift of your spirit to fan faith into life, strengthen it in our hearts. It is as weak as a mustard seed for many of us, we confess. But we pray you would grow that, uh, that little seed and give us great faith, confidence and certainty in the things to come. Forgive us our doubts. And we praise you that you have promised there will be a people for your son, a real, living, breathing, physical people for your son in a real, living, physical world. Please forgive us our sins. Uh, please grow the number of people who will be part of that body. Bless, we pray, our unbelieving friends and family, colleagues. And might we be found with them on that day part of the joyous world where all the great things you've given in this world even the love of our spouses themselves trifles in comparison to the love that we experience the joy we know the comfort and the security on that day bless us O oh lord we look to your hand alone in jesus strong name amen